Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an uptake in anti-Semitism coming from different directions in the media space with former President Donald Trump calling on, quote, Jews to get their act together before it's too late and Kanye West saying, quote, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Joining us is Dove Waxman, Professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He has been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israel's Identity, Defending Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. We will explore the extent to which Trump is imposing a dual loyalty test on American Jews by suggesting that no president has done more for Israel than I have, and that, quote, our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of the Jewish face, especially those living in the U.S., Then we'll examine the massive transfer of the latest high-tech U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia, selling advanced systems that are not even available to America's reliable allies, like Canada, the the U.K. and Australia, yet are going to a regime led by Mohammed bin Salman, who is allied with Putin in a conspiracy to jack up the price of gas ahead of the midterms in an anti-democratic effort to help bring back a fellow autocrat Trump to the White House. Joining us is Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies and Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at Yale University, as well as Founder and President of the Chief Executive Leadership Institute, a non-profit educational and research institute focused on CEO leadership and corporate governance. He has conducted the research into these weapon sales and provided the data to the United States Senate, at the same time seeking reassurances from the Pentagon that they know what they are doing and who they are arming. Then finally, we'll look into whether the Democrats could lose Senate and House races in the blue states of the West, which President Biden just visited on a campaign tour. Joining us is Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We will discuss his latest article at The Nation, Will Democrats Lose the West? And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible.
And joining us now is Dov Waxman, who's a professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity, Defending, Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, The American-Jewish Conflict Over Israel, and most recently, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dov Waxman. Thank you for having me on the program. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this recent uptick in anti-Semitism, almost sort of casual anti-Semitism uh, coming from former President Trump, who's saying that the Jews need, American Jews need to get their act together before it's too late. And then he went on to say, no president has done more for Israel than I have. And then he said, our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of the Jewish faith, especially those living in the U.S. And, and also Kanye West has been also saying some outrageous things about I'm going death con three on Jewish people, which we can look into. Obviously, he's a as Obama once described Kanye West as a jackass. I don't think he deserves a lot of attention, but surely a former president does. Well, absolutely. I think. Well, I think in both cases, both uh, President, former President Trump's uh, comments and uh, Kanye West's uh, are worth paying attention to um, because they these are people who have huge platforms. Um, they can influence lots of people. Um, they can normalize anti-Semitic statements and stereotypes and tropes. So I think um, you know, even if there's a tendency. Uh, sometimes to kind of dismiss both of them as somewhat unhinged, um, that um, we shouldn't, that we should take quite seriously their remarks. And and really, we need to focus on not just what they intended by them, but what impact these kinds of comments have, Uh, particularly the comments coming from uh, former President Trump, because, of course, he may well be the next president again, uh, if he's likely to uh, run for office. So I think Trump's remarks are most troubling, Um, You know, part of what he said is in keeping with previous remarks he's made on multiple occasions. He's often complained about what he sees as the lack of appreciation uh, from American Jews for his uh, pro-Israel policies, as he he says. Um, He seems to um, believe that American Jews um, should really be voting for him and should appreciate him because of everything he's done for Israel. I mean, for one thing, that clearly conveys... Trump's very kind of transactional understanding of politics and of his under, transactional understanding of foreign policy. Basically, you know, I gave these things to Israel so American Jews and evangelicals will vote for me. Um, but I think there's a real deeper problem in uh, Trump's comments about American Jews and his criticism of them for being insufficiently appreciative of him um, is the implication underneath this all that somehow American Jews should be loyal to Israel, that somehow American Jewish uh, ties are really connected to Israel and American Jews, um, and because he's supported Israel, so American Jews should support him. This implication that that, um, American Jews then aren't fully American. Now, Trump himself may not have meant this as an implication, 
um, and it's, you know, we can't read his mind. Um, but what's important, I think, is the message it sends to his many millions of followers. But isn't he also imposing a dual loyalty test on American Jews? Well, strangely, it, it's a kind of inversion of the classic dual loyalty allegation. So the classic allegation, the accusation was that Jews uh, weren't or could not be sufficiently uh, appropriately uh, loyal to the countries in which they lived because they were loyal to themselves, to other Jews, or to Israel as a Jewish state. And so this was an accusation that Jews should be loyal to the countries in which they live, but that they weren't. What Trump seems to be repeatedly suggestion, suggesting is an inversion of this accusation. He's saying that Trump, that Jews, in fact, should be loyal to Israel. He's criticizing them for not being loyal enough. So it's not really an accusation in Trump, as, as Trump sees it, but rather an accusation, an, an, it's not an accusation that they're not loyal to an, uh, the United States, but an accusation that they should be loyal to Israel. And as I said, that's equally troubling because of the implication that Jews therefore aren't fully American, that they're kind of, he seems to see them as a, as a kind of an ethno-national minority, a group living within the United States, but whose identity and whose loyalty is really to another state. Indeed, in an interview he did last December, Trump argued that Jewish Americans either don't like Israel or don't care about Israel. And then he went on to repeat his claim that evangelicals love Israel more than the Jews in this country. But why do, is he taken seriously by anybody in this country in terms of his qualifications to even discuss these matters because of his obvious affection for anti-Semites and extremists. Uh, if you go back to Charlottesville, they were marching with tiki torches, the Nazis and neo-Nazis, saying the Jews will not replace us. He called those people, you know, they're good people. Absolutely. I, mean, I think they're far more troubling. I mean, I think Trump's own comments and his invocation of these anti-Semitic stereotypes and tropes is, is, is deeply problematic. But what's even worse is the fact that he, uh, his movement and, and other politicians who he's supported, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, have uh, really, you know, trafficked in blatantly anti-Semitic ideas, ideas uh, like the uh, replacement theory, like this idea that uh, that uh, white Americans or white Christian Americans are, are being replaced by immigrants and others. These ideas have directly contributed to uh, anti-Semitic violence, uh, most most shockingly in the massacre in Pittsburgh, which is now four years ago. Um, so it's not just the it's not just it's not only a matter of Trump's use of these um, kind of coded or what, what some might or what's been called dog whistle anti-Semitism. It is also the fact that his movement is really amplifying more direct anti-Semitism and mainstreaming this anti-Semitism in the Republican Party today. Well, the massacre at the temple in Pittsburgh, prior to that, Trump had said that George Soros, who's a target of anti-Semitism, had financed this caravan that this shooter was largely influenced by in order to carry out this hideous act. Exactly. And he repeated that even after the the, uh, the mass killing in, in Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, the demonization of George Soros in particular, which has continued relentlessly for the last few years, 
um, both from from Republican politicians as well as you know somebody like Tucker Carlson on Fox, um, is is really um, very obviously anti-Semitic. It really draws on long-standing anti-Semitic kind of conspiracy theories about powerful Jews using their money to control the world. Um, and it's it, the fact that Trump and his allies have been willing to do this, even after it's been pointed out numerous occasions now, um, that, the, that these are really anti-Semitic tropes, um, suggests to me that at the very least, they really couldn't care for the safety of American Jews. They're willing to endanger American Jews for their own political purposes. Well, indeed, in the interview that Kanye West did with Tucker Carlson, apparently Carlson censored it to make it much less anti-Semitic than it was. And Vice News got hold of the outtakes, so as to speak. I mean, he said all kinds of bizarre things, but he also... He talked, accused Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, of orchestrating Middle East peace treaties in order to make money. And then he went on to say, I think that's what they're about, meaning the Jews. I don't think that they have the ability to make anything on their own. I think they were born into money. So, I mean, he may be right about Jared Kushner, but he's certainly raising, you know, what centuries-old anti-Semitic trope is. Yeah, I mean, well, this is blatant anti-Semitism. I mean, he's, he, you know, he threatened uh, to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. I mean, there's no, there's nothing subtle about that. What's, what's I think, dis most disturbing, though, in the case of uh, Kanye West's remarks, you know, isn't just what he said, which is blatantly, obviously, incontrovertibly anti-Semitic, but the fact that, um, the that you know, Republicans and right-wing media commentators haven't explicitly called him out for it. The fact that they've um, kind of excused or turned a blind eye or simply remained silent in the face of what is really blatant anti-Semitism is particularly disturbing. And at a minimum, you might expect that, you would demand that, that, okay, it's one thing people might interpret Trump's comments differently. And there's some there's some ambiguity in his meaning. And you could say he didn't mean this and he didn't mean that. When it comes to Kanye West's remark, there is no, you know, alternative reading of this. These were blatantly anti-Semitic comments. And yet uh, he has not been denounced. He's not been disavowed uh, by um, by senior Republicans. And I think that's really alarming. So just in closing then, Dov Waxman, do you think that Trump will make inroads into the fact that Jewish Americans overwhelmingly vote Democrat, at least I think about two thirds? I mean, you have a situation now which should make American Jews who vote Republican uncomfortable given these bedfellows, these anti-Semitic bedfellows. Well, I don't think anything really, I mean, that Trump says or does is likely to shift the allegiances of the minority of of Jewish Americans who support him, um, you know, for them, his policies toward Israel uh, is really the lens through which they evaluate him largely. And uh, I think he will continue to have their support. I and mean, he's, he's about to be honored, for example, and receive a major honor and award from the Zionist Organization of America, a very right wing uh, Jewish organization in the United States. So I think you know, the, the, the minority of Jews within uh, uh, who support Trump will continue to defend him, will continue to, you know, support him largely because of what they believe he's done for Israel. The vast majority of the American Jewish community, though, 75 to 80 percent, 
um, will continue to regard him, and rightfully so, I think, as as not only a demagogue, but a demagogue who is really posing a, a quite direct threat to the uh, to the safety of American Jews. Well, Dov Waxman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Dov Waxman, who's a professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He has been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Alan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israel's Identity, Defending, Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, the Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israel-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the massive transfer of the latest high-tech U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia that are not even available to America's reliable allies, let alone to MBS, who is allied with Putin, trying to jack up the price of gas in order to help bring back Trump to the White House. We're gonna chase those crazy Chase those crazy bumpets Chase those crazy bullets out of the yard Here comes the con man Coming with his con plan Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's a Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies and the Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at Yale University, as well as a Founder and President of the Chief Executive Leadership Institute, a nonprofit educational and research institute focused on CEO leadership and corporate governance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Thanks, Ian. It's an honor to be with you. And I mean that. The only thing to add to my bio is that I've been a fan of yours since, I think, 1980. And we, I think, uh, launched around the same time in our work in the same space. That's true. That's when I started, just at the end of Carter and the beginning of Reagan. So (laughs) I'm glad we've been on a parallel track. But don't you think now this is an incredibly dangerous period, both domestically and, and in terms of foreign policy for the United States? Uh, yeah, terribly so. And the, the Saudis have really thrown a um, an unexpected wrench into things. There is no uh, justification for OPEC or OPEC Plus uh, to cut production. It, it seems like an overt effort to interfere in domestic elections. There are reports, as there are in Connecticut, of Saudi money pouring in to uh, candidates, uh, as we have here. That's hard to explain. But the uh, in the gubernatorial election here, but what's really uh, crazy is to cut production when the markets are already so tight. All OPEC producers are making gargantuan profits. Uh, the Saudis alone are making profits that would uh, that would make uh, uh, Tiffany uh, wince in envy. Uh, they're making almost 80% profit margins, which is crazy. The only ones who weren't are the Russians. Because they're so inefficient, but the the Saudis extract their oil at, with U.S. technology at twenty-two dollars a barrel, and uh, the Russians it cost them more than twice that. They're around forty-six dollars a barrel, and Russians to sell their oil because of the sanctions, they have a huge discount from the eighty-dollar price or eighty-five-dollar price where it is today. 
uh, of a $35 discount because only China and India and maybe Indonesia are buying it. So basically, they're producing their oil at break-even prices, plus they have to spend an extra month shipping it to Asia. So this all came from Russia to fuel uh, uh, Putin's war machine, and it's just so upsetting to see the Saudis throw in their lot, colluding with the Russians. Well, apparently the relationship between uh, Putin and MBS is something of a relationship between a mentor and a protege. In fact, MBS fashioned his Tiger Squad, the group that assassinated and dismembered uh, Hashoji and tried to kill former Saudi intelligence official Saeed al-Jabri in Toronto, Canada. They're very close, and I, for the life of me, I don't know why President Biden or who advised President Biden to go there and do the fist bump. Now the White House is making it clear that Biden will not meet with Mohammed bin Salman at the upcoming G20. But it's a bit late for that, isn't it? I mean, is, isn't there a subtext here, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, that both Putin and MBS want Trump to come back? Without doubt. is, uh, And that's the interference here that's trying to help MAGA-type candidates around the country and this election interference. But also, uh, I mean, helping Putin and Trump in one fell swoop is, is incredible. And, and I, Ian, I completely agree with you. Uh, that is what uh, MBS is doing. And um, the Biden and Trump administrations had been played for that. Perhaps Trump had a sense of it. But something to layer in on top of that is something we have never seen in American history and world history is the spotlight that has come out in just the last week. We've done some original research, which shows that uh, we have transferred our most sensitive weaponry, our most sensitive military technology to the Saudis. We don't give that to the UK, to the Canadians, to the Australians, uh, or you know, or EU, or any authentic allies. What we have given the Saudis, and that Trump sold us as this big deal to help U.S. industry and all the, and employ all these workers. Meanwhile, all the jobs, 98% of the jobs, are in Saudi Arabia. And the technology transfer of the intellectual property and the financial ownership is unparalleled. In about 18 months, we will not be able to control these highly sophisticated weapon systems that Lockheed and, uh, uh, that Bo- and Boeing and, and Raytheon and General Dynamics are, are manufacturing in Saudi Arabia for the Saudis. Uh, had it not been for this oil you know, sabotage, this October surprise, we wouldn't have put a spotlight in on this, which is so why we brought this information to Congressman Ro Khanna and Senator Dick Blumenthal promptly, and they right away took legislation, bicameral legislation in both houses. They're both on the Armed Services Committees of the House and the Senate and filed legislation last week uh, based on what we showed them, based on our research, that this is so dangerous. It is, you know, uh, sometimes even paranoid people have enemies, and this is authentic conspiracy to see this Trump-Putin uh, MBS alliance is is horrifying, and it's so short-sighted for the Saudis. The Russians are supporting the Iranians; they're they're mortal enemies. Uh, that whatever our problems are with Iran, it doesn't compare to the Saudis' problems are with Iran. And on top of this, you know, the Saudis only control Arabia because of perhaps misguided U.S. support in the 40s that put, you know, King Saud uh, in charge that helped uh, him navigate a larger control over that region to take control of Arabia. Uh, And Aramco itself was a misguided Nixon idea to transfer in Kissinger 
to transfer the ownership of Aramco was 100% U.S. owned. But in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War, they panicked needlessly, worried about uh, somehow that it would be expropriated by the Saudis and and coerced the companies to hand it over at nominal prices. So the Saudi wealth is is based on Kissinger and Nixon's uh, brilliance. And indeed, Kissinger, after the Yom Kippur War and the embargo by King Faisal, uh, he even contemplated the U.S. Marines capturing and holding the Saudi oil fields. That, they either went that extreme or the other extreme, which is they give it away. And right. and, and the idea of giving it away was to, to secure a, 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 a low-cost, regular a pipeline. But the Saudis, even before they cut production by 2 million barrels, were already 2 million down from what they were pumping into the Trump administration. So they were already sabotaging the Biden administration, trying to ha- make things look better uh, for the Republicans. So this is definite political involvement from the Saudis, and it's 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 really awful. And uh, uh, I sure hope that Congress wakes up and does something. Of course, President Biden himself, through administrative action, as you implied, could do this on his own. But Congress can help give him some air cover. Nothing will happen until after the elections, of course. Well, you mentioned Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's seeking reassurances from the Pentagon that there's no risk in sharing this top-secret, most advanced U.S. weaponry. Uh, He's raising the alarm. But do you think it's time for the Democrats in general and for President Biden to really lay this out? This is what's going on here. What we're I think about. absolutely, and, and I don't mean to pander to you, Ian, but uh, I'm surprised that you realized in that level of depth that Senator Blumenthal has been asking that of the Pentagon. And I, uh, I am not sure that we're getting straightforward answers because I have taken this information to the heads, uh, past heads of the Pentagon, past heads of national defense, past heads of national security, uh, and and state officials, State Department officials, and they're horrified by what we have cataloged. Uh, The Pentagon, I believe, is suggesting, well, there's no real risk here. We're not transferring intellectual property, but in fact, they are. If you just read uh, what the press releases are, the announcements from the companies, or you read uh, what they've done, there's something called SAMI, which the Saudi... uh, It's the the Saudi Arabian military initiative, and all that clearly says that they get ownership to be self-sufficient for their defense using all this U.S. military technology. It's everything short, Ian, of the the nuclear code. It's giving our most sensitive systems that, again, none of our authentic allies have. How we could give this to somebody who's in cahoots with Putin is is bewildering at at a minimum. But if you had a public campaign on the part of the Democrats to just let the American people know that our so-called ally Saudi Arabia is completely in bed with Russia and helping finance their war in Ukraine, and ironically, of course, now Putin is using Iranian drones to great effect. But if they went public and pointed out the United States has fought two recent wars to protect Saudi Arabia, the first Gulf War under Bush Sr., Saddam Hussein rolled through Kuwait, he could have rolled all the way through Saudi Arabia, but for the U.S. intervention. So we have saved the House of Saud. And I think the American people, if they got that context, would be quite outraged at this perfidy on the part of MBS. Uh, The perfidy is exactly right. I think they've been duplicitous. And they have played the U.S. Uh, We've shown no backbone with the Saudis. 
I, I wish everything you just said, we could scream from the mountaintops. The American people have to know this, that we have run cover for them with Iraq and Iran. Uh, as, as much as those two countries, uh, of course, had deep-seated animosity and religious, religious hostility between them, it's nothing uh, compared to the support that we've given them to protect them from both of those two uh, uh, adversaries. But then uh, to this turn on us like this uh, for no reason. Now, some will argue, and, you, and you, if you turn on the wrong TV channels, you'll see some industry analysts that defend the Saudis. They say, well, they're worried about a coming recession. There's no recession yet, and even if there is, there's no justification to cut what already are uh, tight markets. They're doing just fine. They're making enormous profits. There's no justification. And then they'll say, well, it's these oil price caps that the G7 have come up with. Well, the G7, including the U.S., have been very explicit, saying this does not target OPEC oil, strictly Russian oil. These price caps are to set it at a, at a minimum figure for Russian oil that would be just enough to make it worth it for them to produce, but not enough to fund their uh, their murderous uh, war machine. Uh, and, and the Saudis know that, but they're pretending that somehow, because there's a sense of threat, that OPEC, which of course is a producer's cartel, and how, so for some reason it's taken 50 years for people on the other side of the equation to realize, hey, the buyers could have a cartel too, which is basically what the G7 are doing by putting together apparently a very enthusiastic and will be a very effective and easy to enforce uh, a buyer's cartel, which is the oil price caps. And the way it's enforced so easily, there are basically just a handful of companies that you have to enforce it with It's because it's mainly four or five maritime shippers and brokers that handle all the, all the Russian oil that would be uh, shipped. So it's easy to track it and easy to police it. They have to register what their merchandise is. So the work that you have done, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, on studying and exposing the transfer of the most advanced U.S. weaponry to Saudi Arabia, along with the intellectual property, and then raising the possibility that given the close relationship between MBS and Putin, that the most advanced U.S. weaponry that even our closest allies don't have access to could end up in Russia's hands is incredibly alarming. But are there any moves that the U.S. could make in terms of the Saudi dependence upon physically having U.S. trainers there and U.S. personnel? You know, the military-industrial complex are just shameless. Uh, so there's no, you won't get many cooperation. As you say, Lockheed is not cooperating. But can the U.S. military do anything in terms of being on the ground there? Well, and, and, and once again, I... I, like you, don't want to sound conspiratorial, but uh, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, in his farewell address, uh, did warn us about the military-industrial complex. We have very, very good people running defense companies, and yet still the temptation here was alarming. They're actually, if you were to cut out all this Saudi weaponry, we're looking at 1% of, of the defense industry uh, in terms of revenues. And... And a few hundred jobs in the U.S. That this is, these are these are thousands and thousands of jobs in Saudi Arabia. This would not have an, a big effect on us as an industry, but I do worry about some current, you know, with the revolving doors of uh, of employment between the Pentagon and some of these companies. I do worry about the, uh, the transparency of what we're getting about the risk assessment here. I think it's much greater, and I'm told it's much greater as I circulate our research to authentic, uh, objective experts who have been in. in 
national security and, and defense and State Department roles that have uh, great expertise here are alarmed at how much we are forking over. There's no justification for it. And it could stop right away. Now, there's no interoperability with which there's no transferability where somebody could combine our equipment with, say, Russian or Chinese. It just doesn't fit. But also, the Saudis can't go to Russia because Russia is, is the primary supplier of whatever Iran has. And anyhow, it looks like it's just the opposite. The, the Russian military uh, system has broken down so badly, they're actually uh, taking these uh, drones from Iran. So what does Russia have to send them if they're out of cruise? missiles and they're using Iran's uh, drones, that's all they would be able to send the Saudis. And the UAE wanted some uh, pretty uh, uh, dangerous uh, fighter jets, uh, which the U.S. refused, the Biden administration refused. So reluctantly, the UAE went to the Chinese for that. But everybody considers them to be an inferior model. Uh, so, uh, But still, there's not the Chinese and the Russians could not replace what we have been providing them, but we just should bring all that back home and carefully sell to them what we can, uh, but not uh, not give them the intellectual property rights and the manufacturing capabilities to do this. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Jeffrey, Sonnenfeld, back to the domestic implications of, of the fact that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, who basically is raising zillions of dollars for some vanity project, building some modernistic city, that he wants to do. He has absolute control. And we know that he's basically, a, you know, an entitled psychotic punk who murdered and dismembered a Washington Post reporter and has essentially gotten away with it. But he has, he has allies. He has the Trump administration that were unbelievably generous towards him. In fact, Trump even elevate, helped elevate him over the original crown prince. He was deputy crown prince. So in, in effect, he help uh, ease his way into the fact that he'll soon become the Saudi king. But on top of this, the fact that what's going on now is that MBS and Putin are helping to raise the price of gas to hurt Biden and the Democrats in order to pave the way for Trump to come back. The one person who's benefited most so far from the Trump administration's grifting has been the son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who the Saudis gave $2.5 billion to against the advice of their own sovereign wealth fund. He's also now being investigated by Senator Ron Wyden's committee in the Senate because of the white elephant that he bought when he was courting Ivanka, 666 Fifth Avenue, which mysteriously was bailed out. Had that not been bailed out, the Kushner company would have gone under. And it now looks as if what happened there was that MBS, uh, Kushner's pal, uh, blockaded Qatar and threatened them. And then Trump he didn't even know that the biggest U.S. base was on Qatar, and then they had to kind of restrain the Saudis. And it looks as if Kushner made a, a deal with the Qataris to saying, I'll get my friend MBS to ease up on the blockade if you give me $1.2 billion to bail out my 665th Avenue purchase which was about to bankrupt the Kushner family, and they laundered the money through this Canadian property company. So I think this evidence should be out there, doesn't it? I mean, these people are oh, traitors. The, 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 the trail is awful. I mean, we could go on and on. There's a, uh, uh, an Indonesian a golf course that Trump had that was about to go belly up. 
and then um, there was a a a, a, a very dangerous uh, proliferation violator called ZTE, which is about as bad as Huawei, that we had sanctions on them uh, and would have put them out of business. Trump relented for some reason, saying, oh, it would have cost them 30,000 jobs, cost the Chinese 30,000 jobs. Suddenly he cares about that. Well, guess what? He got a forgivable loan for the golf course for a half a billion dollars or so in Indonesia from the Chinese. How do you get this stuff aired? You're so right. I'm praying, although I have no reason to believe this, I wish it was Mike Pompeo who arranged some of this deal and not Jared Kushner. And I'm hoping that Jared Kushner was not a part of it, but uh, the and maybe the, the the Qatari deal was enough to justify that relationship between them, between Qatar and uh, and of course the Saudis, because there was a, a, a pretty serious, uh, pretty serious uh, a- adversarial relationship there that did somewhat get resolved. But you know, you opened with some comments that I never responded to. And I just want to say before we close, I have to. I agree with you, too, that when it comes to human rights violations, uh, if you take a look at, at Freedom House, the, the we have the, the list of them, but anybody can get them. It's hundreds of pages, several hundred pages that Freedom House has ranking Saudi Arabia in the absolute lowest tier of a human, uh, human rights uh, report. Even the World Economic Forum ranks uh, Saudi Arabia at the bottom 5% in gender equality, despite all that we hear about this neom city and the liberation of women being able to drive and perhaps change their attire. They're still far below neighboring many neighboring Arab countries, and they've executed more than five dozen people just just last year, and that's more than any, any country besides China and Iran. So you're, you're so right. And of course, the dismemberment of, of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi is, is just a, a blood-curdlingly vivid example uh, of this, and, um, and this is just a, a terrible human rights record. Well, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, I thank you so much for joining us here. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you again, and thanks for your good work. Well, thank you again, Jeffrey. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's a Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies and the Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at Yale University, as well as a founder and president of the Chief Executive Leadership Institute, a nonprofit educational research institute focused on CEO leadership and corporate governance. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether the Democrats could lose Senate and House races in the blue states of the West, which President Biden just visited on a campaign tour. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And his latest article at The Nation is, Will Democrats Lose the West? Welcome to Background Briefing, Sasha Abramsky. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Sasha. And, and I wondered why Biden made this recent trip to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, mostly for fundraising and then to Oregon and now I realize why, because they're in trouble, right? 
And by the way, I just I just watched the video on CNN on Sunday, Dana Bash interviewing Carrie Lake, who's running for the governorship in Arizona. And I must say, even though Carrie Lake, I think, is absolutely grotesque as a, an election denier, she did handle it very well. And her opponent refused to debate her. And I'm wondering, maybe she didn't want to debate Carrie Lake because Carrie Lake is pretty damn effective. Yeah, I think the decision by Katie Hobbs not to debate Carrie Lake in hindsight is going to look like an absolutely disastrous one. Um, You can't go through an election process and just shy away from your opponent, however extreme that opponent is. Um, It's part of the process of democratic rough and tumble in politics is that you do get on a debate stage with the person you're campaigning against. Um, And so I think Arizona is emblematic of the problems that Democrats are facing throughout the West, which is that you've got a political landscape that in some ways should be very sympathetic to Democrats. You've got a tremendous distrust of Donald Trump, and that's a sort of overhanging issue of the whole election. You've got a part of the country that in state after state has a public which supports right of access to abortion. And yet in states like Arizona, you've got a Republican Party stampeding away from access to abortion. You've got a um, populace that's very keyed in on environmental issues, very worried about climate change because it's on the front line of climate change. All of these things should be playing to the Democrats' strong point. And yet you're seeing in Nevada, you're seeing in Oregon, you're seeing in Arizona, a surprisingly strong GOP showing. And it's not just incumbents who are getting reelected. It's also Democrats who are vulnerable to losing election to insurgent Republicans. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's very disturbing, but it's also really fascinating to watch the shifting political dynamics out here. Well, you can't make fun of of uh, Herschel Walker, as Reverend Warnock is, for not showing up for the second debate. At the same time, you've got Katie Hobbs refusing to debate Carrie Lake. And she was way ahead, by the way, in the polls, Katie Hobbs. She she was. And when I started researching Arizona, I'm doing a series of articles for The Nation. When I started researching Arizona a couple of months ago, it looked like for the first time in quite a while, Arizona's governorship was about to go blue. The Democrats had a golden opportunity, not least because Carrie Lake was an extraordinarily extreme candidate. She's an election denier. She's basically been listed by both The New York Times and The Washington Post as an overt threat to democracy. She's about as far right wing as you can get. And yet somehow Katie Hobbs seems to have blown that lead. Now, that doesn't mean she's going to lose. The polls show they're basically neck and neck. Um, some polls show that Carrie Lake's a little bit ahead. But this is a, a an extremist candidacy that should have been easy for the Democrats to take down. And instead, they've run onto the defensive. And I think that's a real problem. You know, as you said, if we're going to if we're going to look at her at Herschel Walker in Georgia and say, you know what, part of the process is debating your rival. We've got to say the same thing in Arizona. And Katie Hobbs, for whatever reason, decided she was going to be a no show at the debates. And in the interview on on CNN on Sunday, Dana Bash kept asking Carrie Lake whether if she lost, she would concede, and she simply wouldn't answer. So this is the anti-democratic Republican Party, and it's writ large. And what is it, 299 candidates running on the, on the Republican ticket for the November 8 election are election deniers. 
Yeah, so, it, it's a startling number of people. And these are people who are running not just for the high profile jobs like Senate and governor, but they're running for the strategically important jobs like secretary of state. So if you if you come back to Arizona, there's a man called Mark Fincham, who is the candidate for the secretary of state. Now, it's sort of an anonymous position. Very few people pay much attention to the secretary of state's race. Generally, they vote the same way in the secretary of state's race that they do for the governor or do for the senator. But the secretary of state helps determine the framework for how elections are carried out. They're, they help determine whether or not elections are certified at the back end. And Fincham's an election denier, perhaps even more extreme than Carrie Lake. He's an election denier who wants to completely reshape how elections are carried out in Arizona. He wants to end early voting. He wants to completely change the way votes are counted. And he wants to give senators and legislators in Arizona theoretically the right to overturn election results that don't go the way they want them to go. Uh, this is completely antithetical to democracy. And again, for various reasons, Fincham seems to be polling competitively in the polls. Now, it doesn't mean he'll win. I tend to think that in Fincham's case, he'll probably lose by a few percentage points. But the fact that he's that close to being in a position to have influence over how elections are carried out and how votes are counted and how votes are certified, that ought to send a shudder through Anybody who cares about democracy in this country, it doesn't matter whether they're left wing or right wing, anybody who cares about democracy should be aware of the clear and present danger that someone like Mark Fincham poses. And if Carrie Lake were to be elected governor of Arizona, what mischief could she get up to? Assuming that Fincham doesn't take the secretary of state's job, she still could, I imagine, being the governor, cause trouble. She could. I mean, she, she has said explicitly that had she been the governor in 2018, she would in 2020, she wouldn't have certified Joe Biden's electoral victory. Uh, Doug Ducey did. He stood up to Trump. He stood up to Roger Stone. He stood up to all the people who were sort of putting pressure on Republican governors to not certify the election. And he said he had to because it was a fair election and there was no evidence of voter fraud. Uh, so Carrie Lake could get up to all kinds of mischief. If Carrie Lake wins and has a Republican state legislature, which is possible, there are two, there are a majority of two Republicans in both the state house and the Senate, and it could stay a majority of two. If the state house stays Republican and you have extremist Republican legislatures trying to reshape how votes are counted in Arizona, well, then you could have a Republican governor who signs some of that crazy legislation into law, which is why the New York Times magazine a couple of weeks back said that Arizona is a, is a um, laboratory for an anti-democratic politics that's emerging within the Republican Party and threatens to swamp the democratic process. Um, and you're seeing that in Arizona. But what I was writing in my article is there's a real danger that you could see traditionally blue states throughout much of the West where Republicans make inroads because of very specific issues in those states. So in Oregon's case, for example, there's tremendous dissatisfaction with the state of things in Portland, the crime rate in Portland, the um, homelessness crisis in Portland, the perceived lack of law and order in Portland. And that could produce an upset where um, the governorship goes Republican for the first time in decades. Um, in Nevada, which is a very, very competitive state, Governor Sisolak is also in a very, very tight race for re-election with some pretty far-right Republican candidate. So you could have this shift. It, it's not a given that it will happen, but you could have a shift in the West where for the first time essentially since the 1990s, a number of states start trending red after years in which they've been trending blue. Well, Senator Catherine Cortez-Masto is considered the most vulnerable 
a Democrat. And for some reason or other, the election denying Adam Laxalt is what, neck and neck with her? And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Sasha, I thought that Laxalt's own family denounced him, just as Paul Gosar and uh, the congressman Arizona's family have denounced him. Yeah, no, you, you aren't wrong. There, there, there are a series of extremist candidates all around the country where their own family members have stepped up and said, you know what, this person really isn't good material to be in charge of other people's lives and making political decisions. Um, and you're absolutely right that that, that holds in Nevada as well. Um, but Nevada is a state where there's tremendous economic upheaval. It, it was so tourism reliant that when the pandemic hit and the lockdowns hit, its economy crashed particularly hard. And even though it's bounced back, I mean, if you go to Las Vegas, you'll see it's thriving, but there's still 6% unemployment there, which is much higher than the national average. Uh, the inflation rate in Nevada, and indeed the inflation rate throughout the Mountain West is again, far higher than the national average. Uh, between January of last year and today, which is about 17 or 18, maybe a bit more, 19 months, prices in Nevada have gone up by 15%. Well, that hurts people at a very, very basic level. Uh, gas prices throughout much of the West, in California especially, but also in Nevada and Arizona, gas prices are skyrocketing. And people feel that viscerally and they look for someone to blame. And the people they're blaming at the moment are the people who control the White House and Congress, which is Democrats. And so you're seeing this reaction, which is putting Republicans into a more competitive position than they should have been especially given, you know, as I said, public opinion on things like abortion, things like climate change. Uh, but the Democrats are really struggling to nail down that support. Well, here in the state of California, of course, we're paying unbelievable amounts for gas. And it's because of the cartel, the five big oil refining companies. They make more money by shutting down refineries than they do by producing the product. And how is Governor Newsom managing to navigate that? Maybe some of the other Democrats should take a cue from him. I mean, here he is. People in California are getting refunds in the mail, are they not? You know, they, they are. I've, I've written a lot about this in the last few months. So Newsom started pushing for what he called a gas tax rebate, um, uh, basically money sent from the state to car owners. He started pushing for that back in May and it got passed by the state legislature. And this month, those taxes are going to be going out. So that that is an important way of, allevi of alleviating these very high gas prices, but they don't nearly cover the extra cost that Californians are paying for gas. Um, Newsom's navigating it more successfully than some others, at least in part because there's a much better alternative energy infrastructure here. So an increasing number of drivers are driving electric vehicles. And that's because the state has put a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of dollars into creating that electric vehicle infrastructure and into subsidizing the purchase of electric vehicles. So even though prices are higher here, you've got a significant percentage of the population that isn't being impacted too, too much by that because they're driving electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles. Um, you've also got a very aggressive regulatory stance at the moment where the California Energy Commission and various other agencies are investigating the oil industry and they're sending these letters demanding to know why prices are so high. And Newsom has begun calling for windfall taxes against the oil industry. So you've got a sort of more of a political pushback here in California. I don't think it entirely insulates the Democrats. You're seeing certainly in the Central Valley, extremely competitive congressional races that may not all go the Democrats ways. Um, you're seeing some of the statewide races that are quite competitive. So I don't think it's that Democrats are immune from the popular anger here, 
but they are able to capitalize on the fact that they have made these investments in alternative energy and they have got this very, very sort of aggressive stance on climate change policy and so on. And I think it protects Newsom, especially from the kind of electoral blowback that you're seeing in Nevada, that you're seeing in Arizona, that you might be seeing in Oregon. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean California doesn't have its own problems. Um, I mean, anyone who lives in California can see there's a tremendous problem with homelessness, for example. Um, so it's not that we're doing everything right here and that the governor has got everything under control. But there is a fractured Republican Party here that is unable to capitalize to the extent that it is in other parts of the country. And there's a very, very strong political machine backing up Gavin Newsom at the moment. But in more local races here in, this, in Los Angeles, for example, homelessness is a huge issue in the mayoral race. And I find it so extraordinary because, you know, I'm just absolutely blitzed with flyers in the mail. A lot of them are completely dishonest. I mean, uh, this guy Caruso, the the real estate developer, is branding himself as a pro-choice Democrat when, in fact, he is a pro-life Republican. So <laughs> there's not a lot of truth in advertising going on here. But the city council of Los Angeles is gripped with this scandal, which has already cost the head of the council, the president, Anuri Martinez, she's stepped down. And two other councillors, Gil Cedillo and Kevin De Leon, are under enormous pressure to step down because of the they all shared these uh, racist jokes, particularly against uh, making fun of the black son of a fellow councillor, Mike Bonin. Pretty ugly stuff. What's your sense of uh, whether there'll be a resolution there? Will there be any, um, I mean, it's sort of dividing this town along racial lines, which is extremely unsavory and unwelcome. No, that's right. And, you know, it's peeled back the veneer on some really, really ugly realities of, you know, how power is used and abused in the City of Angels. Um, will there be resolution? I mean, as you said, Nuri Martinez has already resigned. There's so much pressure on the other two to resign that it seems to me only a matter of time before they do. And, you know, both Cedillo and Kevin de Leon they were up and comers. I mean, they, these guys were high profile when they were in Sacramento. They, Kevin DeLeon ran as a progressive candidate in the um, primary against Dianne Feinstein. Both of these people were seen as going places, both at a state level and at a national level. And this crisis has probably finished both of their political careers. And, you know, when you hear those tapes and you read about what was said on them, you know, there's some really ugly stuff that was said, just casual racism that was bantered about. And you're right, it should have no place in Los Angeles politics. And it's going to cause tremendous upheaval, I would think. Um, I mean, this is a city that is so complicated and its alliances are so fragile and its social calm is so fragile. It's a city that has had, you know, episodes of extraordinary political upheaval and it's had a series of very high-profile riots over the last several decades. Um, this is a city with an uneasy calm. And, you know, our moment is so fraught anyway. There's so much destructive race politics in our national discourse. There's so much coarse insults that's just sort of bantered about on social media. We've got to find a way as a society to de-escalate all of this. We've got to find a way to have a more nuanced, kinder, gentler less bigoted and less discriminatory conversation as a nation. 
And at the moment, you know, there's so many instances where we're going in the wrong direction. Um, and I, I was just so disappointed by what transpired in Los Angeles. So just in closing, Sasha Rabransky, just to, to wrap up the politics here in the West, which aren't going quite as well as was assumed uh, that this was a, a lock for the Democrats. Of course, you're living here in, on the west side of Los Angeles, which is the ATM for the Democratic Party, I'm in a bubble, but I've always felt that anybody that shares my personal politics would be un- unelectable. And I don't know that other liberals have that sort of humility that they have to recognize that this is a very conservative country. And you recall many people, I certainly remember when Reagan was elected, everybody was in shock. How did this happen? Same thing with George W. Bush. I have this terrible feeling that on November the 9th, we may wake up and find that the Republicans have taken both the Senate and the House. I don't even want to it, it have this discussion, but I feel like I have to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly possible. I mean, it, you, you don't have to go back for any many years to 2016, where we woke up and realized that somehow this country had elected Donald Trump, um, which, you know, even a few years earlier would have been absolutely unfathomable. But there are these very coarse, crude, populist right currents that are swirling around at the moment, not not just in America, but look what happened in Italy last month when Giorgio Maloney got elected, um, the neo-fascist leader. Um Look what happened in Brazil, where, you know, despite all of the polling showing that Bolsonaro was going down to a heavy defeat, he polled very strongly in the first round and was only three or four percent behind Lula in the first round of the presidential elections. This is an international phenomenon at the moment. Um, It's not that democracy has died, but it's that democracy is under threat and that there are these very, very powerful right wing populist narratives that are appealing to a lot of people. And the urgency at the moment is finding a way for not just progressives, but finding a way for everybody who's interested in preserving the institutions and the culture of democracy to work together to push back against that right wing populism. Um, You see some evidence of it. You see people like Liz Cheney who are making a good faith effort from the right to push back against right wing authoritarianism and right wing populism. But unfortunately, you see an awful lot of people who, for entirely opportunistic reasons, people like Kevin McCarthy, people like Mitch McConnell, they don't necessarily buy into the Trumpist project. They don't necessarily like Steve Bannon and all the crudeness of authoritarian populism, but they're perfectly willing to lie in a bed with them if it will help them to get elected. And I think you're right. There's a real danger that Kevin McCarthy could end up as the House Speaker come November 9th or House Speaker in waiting come November 9th because people are angry about things like high gas prices and they're angry about rising crime rates. And they've got enough anger going on that they don't pay attention to the threat to democracy that McCarthy and the alliances that McCarthy is now making represent. So just in closing, people have got to vote like this is their last chance to vote, because frankly, if they don't vote in November, after that, if the Republican election deniers take over the electoral machinery in this country, their vote will become meaningless. So this may well be our last chance to save American democracy. Yeah, I mean, we talk in hyperbole all the time. This is the most important election ever. But, you know, there's a pretty good case to be made that this really is a critically important election because this is the first time, even in 2016, when Trump was running for president, 
there wasn't an entire party behind him of election deniers. This is the first time that we could end up with hundreds and hundreds of people in federal, state and local office completely willing and able to subvert elections if this election, if the election result doesn't go their way. And that's a horrifying prospect. Well, Sasha Abransky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And his latest article at The Nation is, Will Democrats Lose the West? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more light goes on